This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about giving members of the historical community the chance to leap back in time, quantum leap style, and put right what still goes wrong. I am public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever loyal co-host and fellow historian Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. And this week, we're rounding off season two. But to take us into our break, we are joined this week by a true Goliath of military history. This week, we welcome author, military historian, broadcaster, director of the Defence and Global Security Institute, founder of the National Source of Protection League, and champion of the finest cravats, ladies and gentlemen, the legend that is Professor Peter Caddick Adams. Peter, Welcome to History Rage. Hey, great Paul and Kyle. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. You are welcome. You feeling angry? I'm, I'm feeling particularly aggressive this evening. Absolutely. You've you wound me up superbly. Um, I'm in a, a part of the world known for its quick tempers. I'm the Balkan side of uh, sort of the Dalmatian coast and across of lots of very excitable Italians. Uh, and here I am in Istria, neighbouring Croatians and, and Bosnians and Serbians, all of whom can sort of kick off at a moment's notice. So um, this is a part of the world where, you know, you just like the blue touch paper and stand back. Oh, we will. So we've seen you at Chalk Valley and we've read your articles and worked our way through an impressive collection of books. Uh, but for those of our audience who aren't aware of your work, and I'm particularly thinking where the medievalists crawl out from under their rocks, Tell us a bit about yourself and your background and your career. Well, as with very many people, probably, I'm not, I'm not exactly where I expected to end up. Um, I've always had a liking for history. But when I left school, I went straight into the army. I went straight to Sandhurst. So I did a bit of soldiering. I, uh, I've been a journalist. I ran a biz- family business in Stoke-on-Trent, which taught me uh, a lot about budgets and priorities and uh, things like that. Uh, and then I did a degree at the good old University of Wolverhampton as a mature student uh, under a wonderful professor who's now ruling the roost called John Buckley, to whom I owe a lot. He gave me one of the first firsts they had awarded in the brand new War Studies uh, degree course. And after that, because I was a Territorial Army soldier at, at the same time, uh, I then went and did a, an operational deployment in Bosnia, not so far away from where I am now. So that taught me about the business of war on operations and how all the nuts and bolts fit together for real. Uh, And as I came back, I bumped into the the then head of the UK Reserve Forces. Um, So he was my brigadier. uh, And that is a historian well known to many of you, whether you're a medievalist or or a modern historian. uh, And that was Professor Richard Holmes. And he had uh, launched his War Walk series and uh, I think had 
I then authored something like 20, 25 books. And we hit it off straight away, discovered that my grandfather had been a company commander in the neighboring battalion to which his grandfather had been assigned as an RSM in the First World War uh, of the 46 North Midland Division. So there were all sorts of sort of connectivities. Uh, and we started doing battlefield tours together. And he then, because I was doing a bit of work at, at uh, Wolverhampton and Birmingham universities, he said, well, when are you going to come and work for me? And I said, Richard, you haven't asked me. So he created a post <laughs> and I worked for the wonderful Richard Holmes um, until he died in uh, whenever it was, 2011. So I worked for him for uh, 12 years and he was an honorary uncle uh, and twice my boss because yeah. he was both director of reserve forces, my brigadier uh, and my professor. And when uh, when I went away on my second operational tour, which was to the Gulf in 2003, the second Gulf War as the historian, I'd been the NATO historian in Bosnia uh, the decade before. I went to him and said, listen, Richard, I'm, I'm going to go off to war um, if war is going to happen. And he said, well, as your brigadier, I'm hugely impressed and I think this is a wonderful thing. But as your professor, um, I'm, uh, I'm much less pleased because I don't know how we're going to fill the gap. Um, it's lunchtime. I'm going to go away and have a conversation with myself. And he came back after lunch and he said, Peter, you'll be pleased to know the brigadier has won. Off you go. <laughs> So I owe him a lot. There's hardly a, there's hardly a day when I uh, I don't miss him because he's there on my shoulder, I feel, all the time, just sort of prodding me and reminding me about various things. And he taught me to start, um, because I was a classicist in doing my A-levels, he told me to start with military history with the Romans and the Greeks yes. um, and the Trojans and work my way up to the present day. So don't get stuck in a trench where you don't know what happened a few months or a few years earlier, and, and you don't know what happens afterwards. Just have a good, broad spread. Mm -hmm. um, so he and I have done Hastings Battlefield together. We've been to Naseby. We've been to Waterloo. We've done the Peninsula um, campaigns. We've done lots of First World War, lots of Second World War. Uh, and I'm, you know, uh, I've, done, I've taken people around Sarajevo because I was there just after the, um, the, mm. the Bosnian Wars finished in the mid-90s. And my last time in, uh, in, in the Gulf uh, was, uh, was I, I, I went to Ur, which was the birthplace of Abraham, uh, and so is you know, home to whatever it is, 5,000, 6,000 years of, of um, unrelenting civilization. Uh, and since then, I've been to Afghanistan. So I, I do like to think I, I cover the spread um, very widely, but the danger is, of course, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm like um, marmalade spread very thinly on toast. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that, for giving us uh, that insight. As you'll be aware, History Rage is all about not that thing that you are most proud of, but that, that thing that really drives you up the wall, that thing that puts your blood pressure through the roof. So, Professor Caddick Adams, with all of the emotion and uh, all of the rage that you feel it musters, would you please tell us the one thing that you wish people would just stop believing? So what gets me angry is three words. They're German words, Versprung durch Technik, excellence through technology. And we hear this trotted out all the time when we're talking about German automobiles. Uh, and, of course, the trouble is that we backtrack that to the history, to the two world wars, and particularly the Second World War, that German excellence that we take for granted today in terms of whether it's automobiles or hi-fi or the processes that give mm. us supermarkets that sell us all sorts of important things very cheaply, that that was Germany in the 1930s under Hitler and particularly in the Second World War. And that really gets my goat because we, we're using hindsight in the most ridiculous and wrong ways to give a completely false impression of the war with the Third Reich, because they really weren't technically excellent at all. Thank you. Which leads us neatly then into Kyle's first question. So Kyle, do you want to dive in? Did we, and by we I mean the Allies, do this to ourselves? Did we big up and promote the idea of the Third Reich being this technological powerhouse to make our victory over them look more impressive? 
That's a very clever question, because clearly there's an element of that. Mm. Your victory is all the greater if you defeat this you know, wonderfully technically advanced uh, nation. But what we need to do is go back to before the Second World War, take a snapshot of Germany in 1939, um, just as the, the world begins to go to war. Uh, and a good way of assessing how advanced a nation is, is to look at the car ownership yes. per head uh, of population. Mm. Um, and Britain is fairly advanced. America, of course, has has been you know, huge numbers of cars. The French and Italians are, are up there in the league. But one of the lowest countries for car ownership per head of population is Germany. And this is completely at odds yeah. with the newsreels and our understanding of that nation. So there in a nutshell, we've got the beginning of, of this conundrum. And the, the, on one hand, the Germans are selling their own people, this sort of romantic Wagnerian image of the past. Uh, and you see it in newsreels with, with horses and plows. Uh, and on the other hand, um, the most advanced te technically uh, advanced military um, hardware with tanks uh, and aircraft. But we can we can wind that forward a bit to the first year of war in 1940. Germany invades France with, uh, what is it, 10, 11, 12 panzer or motorized divisions. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the, uh, the hardware that invades France in May 1940 are horse-drawn infantry divisions that rely on about 500, mm -hmm. 5,000 horses uh, to pull all their gear, particularly uh, all their guns. But you never see that in the, in the newsreels. What you do see is no. tanks and tanks and tanks and a lot more of them uh, and uh, Stukas uh, and Messerschmitts. You never see Henschel biplanes, but the Germans have still got a lot of biplanes in the Luftwaffe in 1939. Mm. So what we have is, is a nation that's promoting itself as very techni technically advanced, when, in fact, the opposite is true. Am I right in thinking, Peter, that if you were to take the major powers at the start of the Second World War and look at who is the most mechanised, most motorised army, at least in Europe at that time, would I be right in thinking that's the French? Um, no, it, it's actually the British. Yes. Really? Um, so if you look at the British Expeditionary Force in, in 1940, we don't take a single horse to France. Uh, and we, we uh, at some expense motorise and mechanicalise, which was the verb used at the time, um, the entire British Expeditionary Force. It means we leave everything behind when we escape from Dunkirk. But the, the, the statement and the vision there was to have the most modern army. Now, Montgomery criticised that because it, 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 when he took over 3rd Division in 1939-1940, uh, um, he had a huge number of vehicles which weren't military, um, which were painted a, a variety of, of bright colours. And the first thing he had to do is get everything painted green. <laughs> but the important thing, he, he called it a travelling circus. But the important thing was that the British Army moved everything on wheels and tracks and there were no hooves at all. So the French Army played the numbers game and, and had huge numbers of horses that towed yeah. certainly second line units, um, particularly the artillery. But so did the Germans. Uh, and America is has a tiny army in 1940. It's about to suddenly start yeah. expanding. But, I mean, the, 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 the U.S. Army is just larger than that of Portugal, Good which is God. a, a, a well-known European player in terms of uh, huge armies. So that's, that's how irrelevant, and I think that's the right word to use, um, the U.S. Army was at the time. So their growth uh, and their mechanization is mm. absolutely phenomenal. Um, but... The measurement of sort of horses is is particularly important. So the Germans have actually mm. given up on the idea of mechanising their army because they know they can't do it. Uh, whenever war happens, they uh, they don't have the resources. They've got crop steel, they've got lots of coal, but of course they're they're hamstrung by the amount of gasoline uh, that they can produce. They're importing nearly all their gasoline needs. Um, so what yeah. Germany is very good at doing is using railways. It can produce endless amounts of iron and steel. Uh, and, of course, railways need coal or wood, which Germany has got in abundance. Um, but if you're going to the motor vehicle, then um, uh, Germany has got you know very, very few compared with other countries in Europe. There's a very good way of, of illustrating that. To anyone 
listening who collects military badges. Um, the Germans, of course, have got lots of endless little sort of proficiency badges, but they're the only country in the world that issue a badge to drivers, which is a tiny little bronze uh, emblem that you sew on, on your um, on the cuffs of one of your uh, uniform jackets, mm. which, which shows a driver's wheel. And the idea that you actually identify who is a driver underlines completely that the Germans have so, so few drivers. Uh, and and you know, that, that was a German uniform badge at the beginning of the war. If we fast forward to the end uh, and the Battle of the Bulge um, and the time of the Malmody Massacre, which is 17th of December 1944, when an SS unit yeah. capture a, a load of um, American troops with all their vehicles, the first thing the SS do is they assemble all the troops in the field, the captured uh, Americans, and they ask them, chauffeur, chauffeur, who amongst you is a driver? <laughs> and some Americans volunteer and thus save their lives because the Germans don't know how to drive cars. Even after five years of war, they capture a load of American trucks, jeeps, armored vehicles, and they don't have the drivers for them. So it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the beginning or the end, the German war machine is not what it's cracked up to be. And the, the image that we have of this you know, huge beast that's incredibly technically advanced. And that's why I get so angry. Well, leading into that kind of Nazi technology thing, I mean, we, we do know that the Nazis do have a race for technology, you know, through the vengeance weapons, development of jets, everything, everything like that. How much of that race for technology over, say, basic tactics and strategy would you say leads to their downfall? What we have to remember about the, the Third Reich is that it's a particularly chaotic regime. It, it doesn't make the trains run on on time, uh, and it comprises lots of different mm. ministries which compete and hate each other, and, and it revolves around personalities. But at the top is, is Adolf Hitler, and nothing happens without his say-so. And, of course, you know, from 1941 onwards, he is controlling the war. It's not his generals. It's, it's his touch personally. And Hitler is... I mean, he's a runner. He's a, he's a lance corporal in the First World War, and he has no military training. And he's he's been a failure at everything he's tried to do, but he has no technological skills whatsoever. I mean, he has no language skills. He mm -hmm. has he's never been outside Germany or Austria uh, until he becomes chancellor, and even then, he travels very very little. I mean, his world knowledge, his worldly wisdom is is incredibly small, um, and that's one of the drawbacks. So, on one hand. He conceives of weapons in a sort of science fiction Jules Verne type way, but he has no knowledge of the process of how to develop them and no knowledge of the practicalities of, of whether these things can actually deliver or, or not. So he comes up with the V-Weapon program, but it's, uh, how can I say? I mean, it, it, it's misapplied right from the beginning. V-Weapons with some kind of... Uh, poison gas in the tip, whether a, a, a V1 flying bomb or a V2 rocket, could have, been, could have been turned into weapons of mass destruction. Um, and they had that mm. potential right from 1944 onwards. But they're never used in that way. Um, I mean, the, the way perhaps to, to compare Hitler is with Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill is incredibly bright, although he never went to university. Um, probably because he never went to university, but he has this inquiring mind. It does help some people. It does, doesn't it? I mean, I was a very late developer, but it's it shouldn't shouldn't be a, a moniker or a marker for for for, for people. But Churchill is f first and foremost a journalist, and you know, if you read his early articles, he he's he's exploring ideas like death rays and delivery systems for powerful weapons long before they happen. Um, and so he's gifted with that kind of military insight. I mean, the floating harbours used in D-Day come from an early idea of his that he had adapted for use in the First World War to set up something similar uh, near Denmark to attack Germany from. Um, so he he is full of these ideas. But he, he understands um, the nitty-gritty of organising ministries and civil servants um, to, to lasso the appropriate resources, and then he can argue these cases through in cabinet committees. Hitler just dreams up these ideas. 
expects other people to uh, deliver has set up a a Darwinian survival of the fittest where different ministries and personalities battle it out between one another. Um, and, and so mm. it's surprised when people don't deliver and that becomes a huge problem for him. Uh, so the Germans are victims of their own success because their their aspirations are, are largely Hitler's and the trouble is he interferes so much. Um, so was there really anything that the Third Reich possessed in terms of technology that could pose a significant threat to the Allied war effort? Particularly technology-wise, I'm talk- talking here. Okay, so that's a very good question about whether the Germans did actually pose yeah. uh, a threat. I mean, their scientists are, of course, brilliant. Um, and, and to a certain extent, it's the Americans and the Brits who exploit the ideas of German scientists. Yeah. Um, they come up with the ideas first. Uh, now, in the Third Reich, because of the sort of chaotic nature of the regime and Hitler's inclination to interfere. God, it makes me so angry when you look at the resources um, that were available to the Germans and how they're consistently misused. Um, The Messerschmitt 262 jet fighter is a classic. It's designed as a fighter. Hitler says, no, it's got to be a fighter bomber, so it's got to be able to take heavier bomb loads. Um, the whole thing is redesigned several times, and it doesn't come into play until 1944. It could have come in as early as 1942, um, and that would have been a game changer for the Royal Air Force because we wouldn't have had anything anything like that uh, uh, nearly as fast. Uh, it could have massacred uh, Allied um, aircraft, never mind all the ground forces on the D-Day beaches. But Hitler's con- constant interference means that uh, it, it's not going to be available until much, much later on in the war. And by then, the Germans are on the lo- not only on the losing side, but they're, they're, they're running out of fuel. Um, and so there are not mm-hmm. enough of these things. There are too few experienced pilots, uh, and, there's, and, and, and there's not enough fuel. So that's where you know the Germans have a capability that Hitler completely sabotages. Uh, and you could sort of say that for a, a, a lot of other different things. The, the, the thing that completely hypnotizes Hitler and, and again shows his ignorance and his lack of education is he just wants big and better. Uh, and to him, better <laughs> simply means something that's big. So if you look at German tanks, Germans start off with a lot of them. Um, it's not German tanks that are brilliant and win the day in France in 1940 or Yugoslavia or wh- wherever we're talking, Russia. It, it, it's the way they're handled. Uh, and in the offense, German tanks are very, very good. They have high speeds. Their fuel tanks have huge capacity. But once Germany goes over to the defensive uh, and things like the Tiger One and the Tiger Two come in, uh, and to a certain extent the Panther tank, um, the armament gets thicker. So the tanks get heavier and heavier and slower and slower and the wear and tear on things like gearboxes. Uh, but also fuel consumption goes through the roof. And Hitler's last tank that is in concept stage only is the Maus, uh, which is over 100 tonnes. I mean, it's bonkers. Uh, <laughs> tanks, tanks ideally are about 40 tonnes, because 40 tonnes can go over most bridges and pontoon bridges. Once you get higher than that, so a 60-tonne Tiger tank and a 70-tonne Tiger two. You're going beyond the capability of most bridges, and you certainly don't have the capability of military engineers to quickly run up a bridge to take a tank of that weight. So Hitler never thinks thinks this one through. So again, great capability, completely sabotaged, um, and they 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 would have they would have been game changers had they been lighter uh, and more of them available quicker. So again, we have you know the same idea. Submarine design, um, exactly the same. The Type 22, 21 submarines right at the end of the, the war, which can stay underwater for much, much longer with, with super diesel engines, um, can go right across the Atlantic almost without submerging. There's one after, D, after VE Day that refuses to surrender, goes all the way to Argentina, spends 66 days underwater. I mean, imagine the Battle of the Atlantic being fought with those in 1942. Britain would have been uh, brought to her knees with that kind of advanced technology. But it's slowed down all the time because Hitler is constantly sort of pursuing uh, dreams. And, and he never, he's never straight with his generals, admirals and air marshals. 
he says to the Navy initially, right, there won't be a war before 1941, 1942, and then he goes to war in 1939. So the shipbuilding program is sort of thrown up into the air. Why does that matter? Ger- the, the German Kriegsmarine is going to build aircraft carriers. It has the Graf Zeppelin, and it has two more um, on the uh, in, in the building yard. Now imagine going to war with three aircraft carriers, nothing like the 12 I think the Royal Navy start with, but imagine going into the North Atlantic and absolutely creasing Britain's convoys uh, if you've got an aircraft carrier. Uh, when the Bismarck goes out on her mm. sortie in May 1941 with the Prince Eugen and they blow up HMS Hood, imagine the difference had those two capital ships gone with an aircraft carrier, the Graf Zeppelin, all those swordfish aircraft, trying, which is what it eventually does for the, the Bismarck, would have been wasted by the, the, the sea stukas and the sea Messerschmitts on board the Graf Zeppelin. And this isn't the dream world. I mean, this, these are all the ideas on the, on the stocks that would have happened had it not been for Hitler not being straight with his forces, going to war far too early, um, and interfering constantly. So the capability is there, the Wolfsbrunnberg technique, but it, it, it just doesn't deliver. One of the things that's always got me on kind of on this subject is to go back to the V weapon program again. So like you say, it's it's big, it's supposed to be impressive, it's supposed to it's supposed to bring well, basically it's supposed to bring the world to its knees. But by the time that they it's actually coming out, they're not launching these things in America. By that stage of the war, if you're if you bring Britain to, you know, the point where the public demands that Britain surrender, at this point we've still got America and still got Russia in that very same war. It's not going to do them any good whatsoever. I mean Hitler Hitler treats the rest of the world the way he treats um his uh, his friends and allies. I mean he came to power by taking over other parties uh in Germany. Uh, and none of his coalition partners are ever treated as equals. So he assumes that that's the way the rest of the world works as well, and that Britain and America are a a coalition merely of convenience. They really hate each other, uh, and therefore, if you can needle them so that they'll fall out and have a row, like invading through the Ardennes in the the, the winter of nineteen forty four, each will blame the other for this unexpected nasty German surprise, uh, and the the Allied coalition will fall apart because that's how he treats the Italians. But, you know, <laughs> Schaefe, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force, is 20,000 strong of people who speak the same language and are best buddies. Churchill is half American. I mean, this, this fallout is just never, ever going to happen. So, you know, the, the, I mean, so the man is bonkers, is, 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 uh, is offending people who are bonkers. I mean, he is way, way off the curve in every possible way. And, and you know, is, is his is the Allies' best possible secret weapon and, and the Third Reich's worst possible because he is the, he's the guy at the top unwittingly sabotaging everything that's going on. Technology is there. It's how you use it. So it's often been said that wars are won in factories and not on battlefields, and you've mentioned that they have kind of a lot of iron, a lot of steel, a lot of wood, a lot of coal, can do a lot with railways. Did Germany ever ever really have the resources, the capacity and the capability to pull off its goal? No, Germany has the resources, capability and capacity to pull off a very, very quick victory uh, against uh, a traditional adversary like France. But Russia is never going to be eaten up um, in six months. And the lessons of sort of geography should have told the, 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 the Germans that. But I mean, far more importantly is the Second World War is a resource war. And Historians get completely hypnotized um, by two things. One, one is they, they overlook the fact that war is extremely dull and boring for 95% of the time. Um, and yet historians focus on the 5% when, when battle is engaged. But for those 95%, it's all preparation and training and logistics. And that's really what makes the difference. Um, so... Behind the Allied success of D-Day, my last book was, was Sand and Steel, um, all about the first 24 hours of the invasion of Normandy. And I argue that its success isn't, isn't the extensive preparation and training of the previous three, three months or whatever it was. It, it, it takes two years to perfect that first 24 hours. Two years just to get the first 24 hours right. And, and the same with you know, some of the, the early German victories. 
Um, but all those lessons are sort of lost. Uh, and essentially what I'm saying is, is all of this is, is one in the factories before you even start. So this is where you need a, a, a military industrial policy that is aligned with your military mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and your politicians so that they're making the right things in the right quantities uh, and available in, in, the, in the right space of time. I mean, go back to D-Day again. We delay the invasion of Normandy at the end by a month so we can make more landing ship tax LSTs because they're perceived to be the key combat indicator, the key capacity, the signature piece of kit that we need to make it a success. And if you delay, even by 30 days, that will give you so many more of these things made in the United States shipped across the Atlantic. So you are backtracking. You are reverse engineering, um, in, in that case, uh, the, the successful invasion. Proof of the pudding, of course, D-Day is you know, wildly successful. So to go over to the Germans, um, you know, They've never got the resources. So fuel, we know about. The Germans are importing nearly all their fuel needs. In the end, they start distilling fuel from coal, and they've got plenty of coal, but they can never distill enough uh, uh, fuel that way. But there's all sorts of other critical things. So um, you're making iron and steel, that's fine, but you need things like chrome and manganese to toughen uh, steel and make it um, you know, armoured uh, armored steel to make it yeah. um, proof uh, against anti-tank weapons, and, and that's what you build your tanks with. And it's all those other metals, precious metals, that come from elsewhere in Europe, particularly from Sweden or from Portugal, Spain, or um, wherever. All a wide range of raw materials, which Germany just doesn't have, that give it their edge, that give it the logistical edge um, to make uh, you know, large quantities of, of, of weapons. So Germany has never got that ability to fight a long war. Uh, and you just have to look at that in terms of um, yeah. equipment. So Britain equips its soldiers with woolen battle dress, which is extremely uncomfortable. It's like wearing a Brillo pad because I... I, I I've know. worn it. Yeah, I, I had to wear my battle dress at school when I was in the CCF. Um, so we've got plenty of wool in the United Kingdom. We've got plenty of wool that's coming from Australia. New Zealand and, and, and Canada, for example. Um, so no problem with resources there. Um, you need lots of rubber for tanks and vehicles and, and, and wheels and tracks and wiring and things. Plenty of rubber coming from Burma. We've got all of that. Yeah. I mean, so Germany doesn't really have much in the way of... Uh, and, and all our webbing, the webbing that we wear, uh, your average British infantryman wears, it is, um, is, uh, is, is made from cotton. Now, you look at German webbing, it's made from leather because they've yeah. got no access to co- supplies of cotton, very little, uh, actually, in terms of wool as well. And, and, you know, that makes a huge, huge difference. It highlights the resource war. So Germany has gone back to the Napoleonic era of skinning dead animals for leather equipment that they wear. Now, leather freezes in, in poor temperatures. We went on to cotton because we learned in the First World War that cotton, even in low temperatures, is still malleable. You can still put it on and take it off. But leather freezes, yes. and you, you, you can't do that in the depths of a Russian winter or any or anywhere else. So German military equipment, as worn by millions and millions of German soldiers, is reliant on the number of horses and cattle that they've got that they can skin. I mean, it, it, it's as basic as that. So it's, it's what Germany has within its frontiers um, that Germany goes to war with. But but writing my present book, which is about the last 100 days of the Second World War from the West, called Fire and Steel, Victory in the West, um, something else became apparent. German war industry is manned by slaves, by slave labor. And I think a lot of us sort of knew that. Yeah. It never really registered with me just how vast this slave labor empire is. Uh, and essentially... Germany calls for volunteers from the occupied countries to come and work in Germany. Very few do, um, but they get slightly better rations and they get a bit of pay. But after that, Germany just starts conscripting and rounding up people for compulsory service in Germany. So every country sends people to Germany and lots come from Poland and Russia. The total of slaves who work in German factories, as enumerated at Nuremberg after the Second World War, is 12.5 million. Oh, God. 
and they're filling shelves. They're, they're working in industry. They're working as domestic helps. But the vast majority are working in Germany's factories, and most of them are making warlike pieces of equipment. Um, they're re reluctant workers, so they're not going to work hard, and some of them are going to sabotage. Uh, and quality control is absolutely abysmal. Now, that equates 12.5 million workers is 26% of the workforce within the German borders. Uh, and these guys yeah. are, you know, certainly unwilling partners, and some of them are hostile to what you're trying to do. Um, and that is lunacy. If you're manning your factories with, with people who don't want to be there, and some of them will actually sabotage what it is that, that they're, they're told to make. Uh, I mean, the, the V weapons, we were talking about those a second ago, V1s, V2s, mm -hmm. the, the, the jet fighters and jet bombers. They're, at the end of the war, they're made in underground factories at places like Nordhausen and all sorts of other places by concentration camp inmates who are taught to do very basic assembly jobs. I mean, they're, they're given such poor food and rations that they die and they're replaced on a one-to-one -one basis. But, I mean, you know, these are the guys making your V weapons and your jets. It's absolutely, you know, beyond lunacy. Um, and so that's what lets the Germans side down. It's not the fact that they they can't make enough. It's not the fact that their factories are being bombed to bits anyway. Um, it's not the fact they've gone to war, you know, far too um, uh, far too uh, early, uh, and they haven't set themselves up to a wartime economy. They don't until. 1941-42, um, women aren't allowed to, to work in the factories initially because um, that's not seen as a very sort of good Nazi policy. Women are meant to be at home bearing children and bringing up families and future warriors. Um, mm. All of that makes for a really poor war economy. But then if you add 12 and a half million slaves who don't, just don't want to be there, I mean, you can just see the whole thing is wired for self-destruction yeah. before you've even begun. Yeah, when you've got something that where one in four of your workforce is quite likely to just leave a ball bearing out of something, that can, nail, that's going to create a massive knock-on effect. Hit the nail on the head. So um, Douglas Bardo, RAF hero, tin legs, lost his legs before the war, ends up in a yep. war camp. Now, if you read his biography he wrote uh, after the war, he ends up in a prison camp before he's sent to Colditz. And they, they're tasked to do war work, which is illegal under the Geneva Conventions anyway, but they're all sent off and they, and, and so he, each day, um, in his lunch hour, when he goes to um, take a crap, he pockets a few of the bits and pieces that he's been forced to make and dumps them down the loo in the factory latrine. And that's his little bit towards sabotage. And the, the yeah. pig, the, and the pig swill that the, uh, the German pigs are fed on, they spike with razor blades and bits of blunt metal, um, that they take from the factories. And if that's what Allied prisoners, if that's what Douglas Bader is doing, and there are several hundred thousand Allied prisoners of war, many of whom are, are working in factories in that way, then, you know, never mind the 12.5 million reluctant slaves. You've got, proactive allied prisoners of war who are also hampering the German war economy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Germany aside, I know we're all about Germany here, but Germany aside... What would you consider to be the biggest technological failure of the Allies? 
Gosh, well, that's a that's a lovely little sort of fastball um, that you've uh, you've sent me. Um, <laughs> biggest te- te- technological uh, failure of the Allies. When you look back at the Second World War, Allied achievements, um, we make great strides. I mean, the the bizarre thing is is how quickly um, technology goes. I mean, you know, just before the First World War, we're talking about man's first flight. And by 1945, we're talking about being able to fly thousands of miles across the Pacific and drop an atomic bomb uh, on a Japanese city. Uh, I mean, that's mm-hmm. the that's the huge race. Uh, average bomb load of a, a European light or medium bomber is about £2,000 in 1939, 1940. That's what a Mustang fighter or a Hawker Typhoon from the, the Brits or the Americans can carry on its way to Berlin uh, 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 as a fighter. Um, so technology happens remarkably quickly. Um, I'm not sure there are any major failures uh, in a- allied technology um, because so many of the failures are Germany's failure to exploit potential that they have. Mm. Um, they have great ideas. They take a long time or they sabotage, which is what I've been saying. Um, the allies are playing catch up but we always manage to do better because the Germans throw us opportunities. They are too slow. I mean, had they gone ahead with Messerschmitt's uh, Messerschmitt 262 jets, um, we could kick ourselves for really being too slow in developing Frank Whittle's jet engine. Yeah. We were very good at sea. Uh, I mean, what, what we have to remember, of course, about the Second World War, and, and we completely th- miss this. Um, is if you're a Second World War historian, you're forgetting that the Second World War was fought only 21 years after the First World War against the, the same adversary yeah. under similar circumstances. The Americans come in late. Battle of the Atlantic is usually important. You've got masses de- of, of developments in terms of technology on the battlefield and particularly in the air. And in, in many ways, it's a rerun. So if you're a Second World War historian, you miss all of that and you're going through this learning curve first time round but what we've got to remember is all the see all the senior politicians uh, have been exposed to the first world war they've nearly all fought themselves you know from from tito and mussolini to hitler and winston churchill so they've got a sense of how these things work and every senior commander in the second world war is a junior officer who's obviously survived the first world war uh, and so they have mm-hmm. seen the impact of technology and the need to exploit developments. I mean, in any war, it speeds up the normal process of development that you would have in peacetime. Um, and probably the one exception to that is radar, which which Dowding, huge hero of mine, uh, started to develop before the Second World War. And it, it kicks in, really, and, and, and plays the role he always intended, but would never have foreseen um, in 1940 in the Battle of Britain. The Germans have got radar, but they, they, they simply don't use it as well uh, as we do. So it's similar technology. But yeah. are the Allies failing to exploit anything? I don't think they, they, I don't think we are. I mean, it's hugely important that the Americans are come into the war um, on the Allied side. And don't forget, in 1940, the American census in 1940, one of the questions asked uh, all American citizens uh, is... Uh, what is your cultural roots? Where, where do you reckon you come from? And 19% of Americans reckon they're of German origin. Now, mm. we take the fact that the Americans are always going to side with the Brits, English speakers, in both world wars as red, as a matter of fact, and it's always going to be the case. That, you know, that was far more debatable in the First World War and even in the Second World War they might not have sided with the Germans. They might not necessarily have come in on our side and particularly, you know, Roosevelt who played a great role in that. Um, But where I'm going with this is America delivers massive manufacturing capability that Britain isn't capable of doing, but also is capable of funding the Manhattan Project, um, the development of the atomic weapon. Uh, And that is decisive in um, defeating Japan in, in, you know, 1945, yeah, I know we're talking about the German war, but but um, had that not happened, certainly the Japanese war would have continued on into 1946 with masses of casualties. Now, the Manhattan Project, hugely important because um, it's resourced 
to an extent that the Britons could never have envisaged and it would have been impossible for the British Empire to have ever backed in the same way, um, with resources, but also with personnel and also with money. Now, the Germans have got something similar going on, um, and I'm now going away from your question and turning it back on itself, uh, because, you know, the big debate is, is could the Germans have developed an atomic weapon and could that have uh, altered the course of the war? Hitler never believed such weapons could, could exist. That's the point. Had he mm. believed that, and, and he would have then, you know, devoted huge resources um, to, to having it developed, then the situation might have been different. But Hitler, almost like Stalin, really, just believes that these things are pie in the sky um, and never understands the capability, never understands the sort of technological um, I- impact. So the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in, uh, in, in a suburb of Berlin, south, uh, southeast Berlin, is incredibly important for all the, the technological development. It, 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 it takes Germany down the sort of nuclear path. Um, Germany's a lot less developed in that direction than we ever think it, it, it was. We, we assume they were making much greater strides. Uh, and in fact, they're, they're not managing to do anything of the sort. Um, but the, you have to understand that the Allies and even, even the Russians are so worried uh, about the possible German impact of developing an atomic weapon that the Russian plan to capture Berlin is dictated by where the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute is and, and how many people yeah. are going to go there and capture it. And the Allied plan is exactly the same. We had a very advanced plan to drop several airborne divisions on, on Berlin. Uh, and, the, you know, the key objective, or one of the key objectives apart from Hitler, it is to capture um, the German nuclear secret, uh, atomic secrets. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's our real worry. So if you want me to answer your first question, which is, are there any allied failures to exploit? I think we, we do extraordinary, extraordinarily well. I mean, if you, you think of um, signals intelligence, I mean, the whole Bletchley Park story, which we're uncovering more and more about, is, 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 is absolutely yeah. fantastic when you think of what it achieved. Um, and the Germans have nothing sort of comparable. So I think right across the board, whatever sort of area that you are diving into, whether it's logistics, whether it's medical, we, you know, the way we exploit penicillin um, is, is, and bring it to the battlefield is, is absolutely superb. Uh, and, you know, this is why you need to be as broad a historian as possible. You understand war yeah. economies, you understand f- financing a war, you understand the logistics, you know, the hard end of sort of, you know, uh, meeting your opponent on the battlefield or, or in the skies or on the, the briny blue is a tiny fraction of what warfare is all about. And you need to understand the whole. Um, and, you know, the thrust of what we've been talking about now is is really all about logistics and how one side was ill-prepared and, and pretty logistically blind uh, and how the Allies, you know, were a true coalition of, of brilliant yeah. log- logisticians. If you harness Henry Ford um, and his you know, methodology, um, the Kaiser shipbuilding uh, enterprises that produce uh, all those thousands of Liberty ships uh, or whatever it is, that's what's going to win your war. That's what's really yeah. going to make all the difference. Okay. So all your range of books are incredibly detailed and very thorough. Um, can you tell us about your latest work and where you plan to go after this? I understand it's called Fire and Steel. Yeah, so my, my next book is Fire and Steel, and I wanted to continue the steel program. So we started off with, in fact, I did it in the wrong order, but, but mm. Snow and Steel was the first, which is the Battle of the Bulge, and then Sand and Steel, which is the D-Day story. Uh, and I wanted to finish the, the Second World War trilogy uh, with Fire and Steel, which is the invasion of Germany. So that's the title um, it will have in the United States, uh, although we've compromised on Victory in the West, which is suitably upbeat um, for the uh, for the UK title, uh, and it covers the story of the last hundred days of the war in the West, uh, really fought on the ground, and it changed direction several times uh, while I was writing it. I mean, normally you pick up a project, you familiarise yourself with the sort of secondary sources, and then you dive into the primary sources. Um, and uh, each book I've written. An, an earlier two with with Monte Cassino or Monte and Rommel. There, there's been an overarching theme with D-Day. It's you know getting 
dying of, of, of drowning in the channel, which was the, the overwhelming fear that most people had not of being shot mm-hmm. by Germans. Um, Battle of the Bulge was the misery of sort of snow and plunging temperatures. Um, so what's the, the sort of takeaway from Fire and Steel? And it was one that crept up on me, and I really didn't expect it um, until I was halfway through writing it. Most of Eisenhower's, he had over 4 million men under his command in the West. I mean, it's a astonishing figure. But most of those soldiers bumped into the Holocaust. And, and those writing the Second World yeah. War rarely bump into the, the Holocaust because the military and the, the awfulness of the Third Reich concentration camps sort of rarely, rarely collide. Um, and I suddenly realized that was completely false. If you've got 12.5 million people who are slaves working in German factories, mostly kept in camps by after their working hours on the in the factory sites, but in penned in with barbed wire and sentry towers and kept on really poor rations and often worked till they dropped and then taken away and killed or just left to die and replaced with others. Um, that's the Holocaust story as well. That's part of the story. And most of these people, when they're liberated, they're set free when they're, the, the towns and, and cities where they work uh, are occupied or, or occupied or liberated. Um, they're classified as displaced people. Uh, and you mm. see this cropping up in war diaries and plenty of personal accounts that probably everyone listening has read. Mm. But you, you forget that actually displaced people aren't Germans who've lost their homes or French prisoners of war who've started to walk home or, or Poles who don't know quite where to go. These huge populations who've just moved on, on a sort of medieval scale. I mean, this is like the Thirty Years' War, or you know, something that is going back centuries in Central Europe. And many of these people are in the most appalling state, uh, and they need medical help. And a lot are traumatized if you if you spent you know, five or six years in a concentration camp watching other people die. Um, so that's the takeaway experience. So many people have actually bumped into some aspect of the Holocaust. I mean, people who work in the factory, some of them wore, wore these you know, striped clothes that the concentration camp people um, were also obliged to wear. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a, a really unexpected takeaway that, that uh, you know, hit me like a sledgehammer. And then on to that, you know, you've got, you've got people li- liberating um the concentration camps, the death camps themselves. Technically, a death camp is yeah. somewhere like Auschwitz um, uh, in Poland rather than uh, within Germany. I mean, I, I I had a chat with a chap called Nicholas Varshman, who's who's uh, the author of of the main book on German camps, and he challenged me. He sat me down. He said, "How many how many detention facilities do you think the Third Reich operated?" How many camps do you think the Germans had, the Nazis had? So I'm going to ask both of you now the question he asked me, Paul and Kyle. How many camps did the Germans have? Give me a figure. You go first, Paul. (laughs) Thank you. No pressure. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm going to go with a nice round 250. 250 camps? Various types. Of all kinds. Prisoner of all camps, everything. Okay, Kyle? I'm going to go for multiple thousands. Okay, how many? Yeah, go on, pick a figure, Kyle. Um, 10,000. Okay, I mean, my answer to him was I, I thought of everything from, you know, Auschwitz to Kolditz, Um And I then doubled it and added a bit more, and I said mm. 5,000. And he said, we're still not sure, but we think the total was about 45,000. Good Lord. 45,000 detention facilities in the life of the Third Reich. So wow. it's, it's an empire built on slavery. Um, and, you know, almost everyone going into those sites is not going to come, is not, they're not designed to release you at the end of the day. Yeah. So yeah. allies advancing from the West into Germany in the last hundred days, because there are very few outside Germany. And the ma- all the main concentration camps in Germany all operate satellites. Uh, and and the, all the big camps like Buchenwald and, and so on, uh, Mauthausen, Dachau, they all have about 100 satellites, all of which look like miniature versions of the, 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 the mother camp. And that's before you get into all the sort of factory sites. So if you're advancing into Germany 
you and you're coming across forty five thousand of these things, full of, you know, people who've lost their minds, the emaciated, the dead, all the rest yeah. of it, all that awfulness. Um, the effect on on the inmates, of course, of of liberation is hugely traumatic, but the effect on the liberators is equally traumatic. And huge numbers I discovered had PTSD, had nightmares, had never were never ever at peace with what they discovered. And this isn't just walking into you know the main camps like Buchenwald. It could be you know somewhere tiny that was a little factory camp where the inmates were yeah. particularly badly abused. So. A huge percentage of, of those Allied soldiers who go into Germany in 1945 suffer from a form of PTSD. Uh, they never quite make peace with what they've discovered, but no help is offered because the the Allies at you know that level just a don't understand if you're a politician um, or a staff officer in Washington DC or, or or London, and because it's such a universal experience, and we're not nearly so comforting to our citizens then as we are now. Hmm. There's no help offered. So, the, you know, the, the, the net effect is, is that nearly everybody bumps into the Holocaust in one way or other. And this works its way through. And, you know, we're, we're now in the last few thousand veterans of the Second World War. Um, and those who are actually, you know, advancing into Germany and, and coming up against the sharp end of this, still haven't quite made peace with that. And that really, you know, hit me in the solar plexus. It wasn't something I expected at all. Um, and that's, that, if you like, is the delight and, and um, motivation of being a historian. It's uncovering what you don't expect to and then being able to communicate that to other people. So my, my job is to reveal to you that history is not what you expect. Thank you. Thank you. And... Uh... At the time of recording, we expect uh, Fire and Steel or Victory in the West, depending on where you are, uh, to be released on 20th of May. Um, And we'll be putting links to that in the show notes and in the new History Rage online bookshop. So thank you very much, uh, Peter, for coming in and setting us straight on a lot of technological issues there. Thank you. Oh, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for coming Um, on. And as soon as you've read the book, um, exam papers will follow, I can warn you. (laughs) thank you if you would like to know more about peter's work then you can follow him on twitter at military history and that's history with an i at the end uh, where you'll get a near constant stream of thoughts all of which are worth your time and uh, an almost constant stream of dog pictures as well which i wholeheartedly approve of you can of course see him speak at chalk valley and at most major history festivals and if that's not enough then there are a wealth of books to read and we're going to put links to all of those in the show notes as well once again peter thank you very much for blessing us with your righteous anger it's been a delight thank you for being a breath of sanity from the mother country to my outpost uh, and my top secret base here in istria you're welcome Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own History Rages using the hashtag History Rage because we want to know what really gets up your nose. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe, leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really means a lot when you do that. Thank you very much. And from all of us here at History Rage, see you in season three. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.